Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. It's a joy and an honor this morning to welcome Reverend Dr. Harvey Martz to the pulpit to give us the message today. Harvey was the senior pastor here at St. Andrew for 18 years and retired in 2012. And we are so grateful for his continued service and presence and love and support of this congregation. And I am personally grateful for his friendship and and support over these uh, eight wonderful years. Before he preaches, we have a text to read. It's a parable. It's a parable called the Good Samaritan. It's one of the most familiar stories that has ever been told by Jesus. In fact, so familiar and so well-loved that even those with no affinity to Christianity have come to understand the Good Samaritan as someone who goes out of their way to lend a hand in times of need or trouble. And so we have Good Samaritan laws. We have Good Samaritan hospitals. We have Good Samaritan or Good Sam RV clubs to support us on the open highway. But the parable itself is a journey story. In fact, it says a certain man was traveling from here to there. And like all good journey stories, there's action, adventure, like robbers. There's danger. There's a rescue. But it's also a story about another kind of journey. A spiritual journey in which we set out to in search of answers to the question that everyone seems to want to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when a certain man asks Jesus for an answer to this question, Jesus tells him a journey story. And in doing so, gives him and us all the directions we really need for our own journeys through this world. So let's hear now one of the greatest journey stories ever told. Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus replied, what's written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right, so he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, left him near death. Now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man and crossed over to the other side of the road and went his way. A Samaritan who was on a journey, came to where the man was. 
But when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. And he placed the wounded man on his donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. Today we begin a new sermon series, and as we do that, we also learn a new song that we sing each week. So we're going to learn it together today, so jump in and sing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. By the way we love, let us be known, let us be known, by the way we love, 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 the greatest commandment is love, love. Two months ago, the New York Times carried the obituary of a Jewish woman who died in a town near Tel Aviv at the age of 107. You haven't heard of her. Her name was Mimi Reinhardt. She's one of the heroes in our world of the past hundred years. Ms. Reinhardt was a two-fingered typist in Poland during World War II for a Nazi SS officer who also ran a factory for the Nazi government. His factory employed hundreds of people making munitions for Hitler's army. The factory owner was high up himself in the SS ranks. He was a womanizer, a heavy drinker, a war profiteer, but with all of his shortcomings, he had developed a conscience, an inner ethical core. As he saw Hitler's horrendous extermination of Jews, people with disabilities, people who were gypsies, he decided he should and could do something. He felt he had to do something. He developed a list of about a hundred names. 
He gave the list to the higher officials, telling them these were his employees and they were essential to the war effort. So they needed to be protected from any harm. But on that initial list were children, women, rabbis, friends of his, and a little girl dying of cancer. He gave the list to his Jewish two-fingered typist, Mimi Reinhardt, to type and maintain. He regularly added names to the list, and so the people on the list, instead of being sent to the gas chambers, were sent to his factory in Czechoslovakia, where their lives were spared. Oscar Schindler's list grew to over 1,100 persons whose lives were saved because of his conscience, his ethical core, his enormous courage, his willingness to sacrifice. If his subterfuge had become known, he would have been immediately executed, as would his typist, Mimi Reinhardt. But they succeeded. At the end of Ms. Reinhardt's recent obituary, she had said of Oscar Schindler, whose failings she was well aware of, she said, I saw a man who was risking his life all the time for what he was doing. Steven Spielberg made that story into a film in 1993 that won seven Academy Awards. Do you remember seeing it? Who's seen it? It's still available on Amazon Prime. It's a hard film to see, as it should be. I chose to open today with that story for three reasons. One is that today in America, people under 40 are less and less aware of the horrors of the Holocaust, and that is a serious problem in the phrase that should be our mantra. We are called never to forget. Second, in the U.S., the rate of anti-Semitic violence and bigotry is rapidly increasing the past few years. In Colorado, from 2020 to 2021, the incidence of bigotry and violence are 53% higher in Colorado, according to the Anti-Defamation League. In the U.S., the increase overall is 34%. Third, I see a connection between the risk, the sacrifice, the courage of the Samaritan man in the Luke reading and the risk and the courage of Mimi Reinhardt and Oscar Schindler. I'll talk about that risk in a moment. The parable we heard, as Reverend Mark said, is very familiar. One of the 38 parables Jesus used as his primary teaching tools. One scholar called these the short stories of Jesus. Most of these stories have a surprise or even an offensive element that would have been disturbing or insulting to their first century audience. There are two of those stories that are probably the most familiar to us, this one and another. They only show up in the Gospel of Luke. Luke has 20 occasions or stories that none of the other Gospels have, which makes it my favorite Gospel. The other familiar short story of Jesus is in Luke 15. Let me tell you the first words. A father had two sons. Anybody recognize that? 
One of the sons, the younger, decided to leave, came to the father, demanded his share of the inheritance. That's like saying to his father, I wish you were dead already. Already, all the fathers in that first century audience were offended, thinking the nerve of this kid. Who does he think he is? And why would this father cave in to such an outrageous demand? The son leaves, goes to a different country, throws away his money and wasteful living, winds up slopping hogs. He comes to his senses, says to himself, I can go back to my father and work just as a servant. That would be better than this. He starts back, practices his speech on the road. Father, I've sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father, I've sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. His father sees him on the road from far away because he's been looking for him. Here's the scandal. The father runs down the road, robes flapping to embrace the son. No self-respecting middle-aged Jewish father would ever run. (laughs) Some of us fathers in the room understand that. We can't run. (laughs) And certainly they would not run to embrace a scurrilous, disrespectful ass of a son, much less throw him a party. The story goes on to insult the faithful elder brother. You can read that for yourself. But the point is, Jesus had told an immensely disturbing story to the audience in the first century. He was likely being booed by the crowd for this outrageous tale. He was willing to be offensive, to make a point about the grace of God. Rev. Mark reminded us of Father's Day. We all have mixed feelings about our fathers or mothers. We need to remember they did the best they could with what they had and with what they knew and who they were. Jesus says God is like this Father. In the Samaritan story we heard, what was the offense? There are several. On that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, Rob has given us some pictures. Some of you have been there. Anybody been there on that road? Good, 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 good. It's a 3,000-foot drop from Jerusalem to Jericho. There are numerous switchbacks and blind corners and hiding places for robbers. It's a common place for theft and violence. When the wounded naked traveler is lying unconscious on the road, the first two travelers pass him by. They ignore him. They walk as far away as they can. These are religious leaders. This is not what their faith tells them to do. It's like Jerry Falwell Jr. and and Reverend Mark's favorite TV evangelist, Joel Osteen. pass by. They have excuses. We might talk about a different time. And next, the Jewish man's enemy, the most hostile pagan the audience would imagine, comes by, goes to the naked man, 
tends to his wounds, takes him to a safe place, generously leaves money for him to cover expenses. Which one acts as a neighbor, Jesus asks the crowd. But they might not have been able to hear that because they would have been so offended and disturbed by this story about a holy disruptor who shatters their tribal values. Not only is the Samaritan a disruptor in the story, Jesus, in telling it, is a holy disruptor for daring to share such a scandalous story. To understand Jesus, we have to remember he called himself a prophet. He does that in Luke 4 after he speaks for the first time to his hometown synagogue audience. And his words there are so offensive. Remember what happens as a welcome to his first sermon. They take him outside the city to throw him off a cliff. It's not a good beginning for a new preacher. <laughs> he calls himself a prophet. One who tells it like it is. One who is willing to comfort people, discomfort people, with what we need to hear. Not what we want to hear. Jesus welcomed the wrong people. The misfits, the outsiders. He even he ate with sinners. He even touched the lepers. You don't touch the lepers in the first century. Jesus did. He was raised on the prophets like Isaiah, who say, for God, chapter 58, I don't need your rituals. I'm asking for you to share your food with the needy, to take care of the poor or vulnerable. Or the prophet Amos, who in chapter 5 says, Take away the noise of your worship. You become too selfish and greedy. Instead, commit yourselves to justice, fair treatment of every person, especially the least, the last, the left out. That might be the background for novelist Michael Connolly's character, Harry Bosch, whose mantra is, Anybody remember? Everybody counts or nobody counts. It's deeply Christian. This concern for every person, especially those outside the normal religious circles, is why Luke's gospel has a different version than the, of the parable of the great feast. In Matthew's version, it's the respectable people who get to come to God's feast, God's banquet. In Luke, it's the misfits the outsiders, those with disabilities, the blind, the disabled, the nobodies, the people who the elite thought did not belong, who get to come to the feast at God's table. This would be another one of Jesus' disturbing short stories. <clears throat> in Methodism today, starting May 1st, we are in a wrestling match over who belongs in the family of God. Actually, it started 50 years ago. We have disagreed over whether persons who identify as LGBTQ are as worthy as others of us. Parentheses. Could it be that none of us is worthy and God accepts, accepts us in spite of that and we're welcome at God's table? There may be some American bishops who need to remember that as they decide who belongs or doesn't belong at the communion table. The mantra from Anne Lamott 
out of her own personal journey through alcohol dependency and drug dependency. Do you remember her words? God accepts us right where we are. What's the rest of that? And loves us too much just to leave us where we are. That is on the wall down the hallway, there it is, of our kitchen, and it's the place where people in the 12, how many 12-step groups? Eight or nine 12-step groups meet in this space every week. It's where everybody in the 12-step groups pass that by, which is really important. Back to our divided state as Methodists, we have a group of church members in some congregations splintering away from the mainstream United Methodist Church over their belief that gay and lesbian persons Members and clergy are not as valuable to God, not as worthy in God's eyes as others of us. That is not the ethic of Jesus Christ, but it's happening. It's been happening way too long. The universal church, in my mind, has a lot of repenting and changing to do. The bigotry has been seen in many places. In one place, described by one of my favorite musical artists, Brandi Carlisle, in her experience as a teenager, growing up in her fundamentalist church in Seattle. Brandi Carlisle has won five Grammy Awards for her Americana music in her book entitled Broken Horses. She tells of her experience at age 16 preparing to be baptized in her home congregation, which was not a Methodist church. She'd been attending baptism preparation classes. Led by her pastor for a while, the date for her baptism had been set. She invited friends, all of her large family, to that sacramental occasion. The day arrived. She was meeting about 10 minutes before the service started with her pastor. He had two questions for her in the final minutes. He asked, Do you practice witchcraft? (laughs) She said, No. Then he asked, Do you practice homosexuality? Brandy Carlisle had been out by that time and fairly open about her sexual identity, but she was shocked, humiliated, embarrassed, just felt she had been sucker punched at the last second. She ran out of the interview, had to leave her family and close friends in the audience in the church building, being deeply wounded by a person who thought he was representing the welcoming heart of Jesus Christ. He was not. She stayed away from any church for many years. People do. But the story, in her case, had a happy ending. She rediscovered a form of Christianity that truly is authentically Christian, began to read mainstream, open-minded thinkers like Father Richard Rohr, who has been a speaker here in the past 15 years or so. She finally reconnected with a welcoming and progressive faith that is represented by the open and affirming spirit of this vital church named after St. Andrew. Have you noticed how Mark opens every service? Don't you get the sense, if you were a newcomer here, wherever you, whoever you are, wherever you come from, Whatever your identity is, 
God accepts you right where you are. I am moved by that every Sunday. Mark Feldmeyer starts his ninth year here in um, 11 days. We're so lucky to have Reverend Mark. Let me rehearse. Adam Hamilton says in one of his books, there is nothing in the Bible that prohibits gay marriage. Really? Ah, that's right. Did you know that? And most of you know by now what Jesus said about homosexuality, right? Raise your hand if you know. What does he say? Nothing. Nothing. If you want to know more about the discussion, I commend the website for the group of retired Methodist clergy I've been working with for five years, United Methodist Association of Retired Clergy and Friends. It's on the, the screen there. The website is umarc.org. We have over a thousand members. We have 1,500 people across the world on our mailing list, including in some African countries where being gay is punishable by death. We have a webinar coming up next Wednesday night covering more about our splintering as Methodists, one of several splintering movements in Methodism over the past 240 years. I commend the free 90-minute webinar Tuesday night, I'm sorry, Wednesday night. You can register on our website, free, umarc.org. Adam Hamilton is one of the speakers this Wednesday night. I've also brought some brief copies of a monograph on the Bible. There's so much misunderstanding about this issue. The Bible on Homosexuality by Dr. Walter Wink. Copies of that are available for you free at the welcome desk on the counter. I mentioned other occasions when American Methodists have divided and splintered off. The largest and most painful was in 1844 over slavery and racism and white supremacy in Northern Church and Southern Church. The issue of racism and white supremacy may be the most divisive issue in our country. It is, as Rev. Mark said a few months ago, our original sin in the United States. I am staggered to read recently that a majority of Caucasian Americans believe that white people have experienced as much discrimination as people of color. I'm staggered by that statistic. It is a sign of so much misinformation and frankly, ignorance of American history. It's another sign of our need for repentance, turning in a new direction. Let's rehearse more history. In the last 400 years, here's what I see. Early in this country, black people were seen as so inferior, they were only considered to be three-fifths of a person. Our most costly and bloody American war, do you know what it was? The Civil War, in which 600,000 Americans were killed by fellow Americans, and where the issue was whether one American could be owned by a fellow American. Staggering to me is some folks still cherish the Confederacy 160 years later. Reconstruction after that war was finally a failure because so many whites were threatened by the emerging equality of people of color. Violent uprisings from whites such as the Tulsa Race 
massacre in 1921. Did you learn about the Tulsa race massacre in American history in school? If you did, raise your hand. I didn't. Most of us did not. 1,200 homes were destroyed in the black section of Tulsa. 200 people were massacred by a white mob. Why didn't we learn about that, do you suppose? After World War II, white veterans from that war were granted benefits in the GI Bill that gave them financial help in pursuing higher education. Black veterans were not included. Why not? In the latter half of the 20th century, black citizens were victims of the real estate practice of redlining people, keeping people of color out of white neighborhoods. We saw violence and rioting in the 50s and 60s in our schools when we tried to integrate some schools for black children like Ruby Bridges. Do you remember Norman Rockwell's poster picture? Ruby Bridges accompanied by federal marshals escorting her into her new school where she was verbally attacked and spat upon. Staggering to me again, we see parents today in some school districts who don't want their children to see that picture. Why is that? Are they embarrassed by what happened from fellow parents? We see parents protesting what they call critical race theory, which they're vague definitions of. From what I've read, what people refer to as CRT is just the honest, accurate teaching of American history. I like what PBS history guru Ken Burns says. Being an American means reckoning with a history fraught with violence and injustice. Ignoring that reality in favor of mythology is not only wrong but dangerous. The dark chapters of American history have as much to teach us, if not more, than the others, than the glorious ones. And often the two are intertwined. There's more troubling news. Some school districts have had meetings where parents are accusing teachers of indoctrinating students with negative history. Responding to that, one teacher wrote, Please know that if in fact we were brainwashing or indoctrinating students, we would start with having them do all their homework on time. <laughs> Pay attention in class, study hard, and bring coffee to us every day. Let me close with a quote from one of my favorite musicians. Jackson Brown has been making memorable music for the last 50 plus years. You may know him from some of his, some of his best hits, Running on Empty, The Pretender, Doctor My Eyes. He's at my age, uh, about my age now, in his 70s. We, we've heard him at a concert at Red Rocks. He, he, his new album has been out about 10 months. He has not finished teaching us, even troubling us. The album, Downhill from Everywhere, contains some important music. He writes about our crisis with the oceans of the world. He sings about the immigration crisis. My favorite one is called, When Justice is Real.
In it, he does what Jesus does. He asks some important, embarrassing questions. Jesus was a question answer. Asker, sorry. I said earlier, when Mark read the 12 verses from Luke, I heard Jesus ask four questions. You remember other questions. Who acted as a neighbor to the wounded man? A few weeks ago we heard from Reverend Mark, why do you worry so much? Will that really help you? Or what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? He might be more specific today. What does it profit a politician if they gain all the power and money and lose their soul in the process? I think that's happening. Another question, what do you want me to do for you? Here are a couple of questions Jackson Brown asks in his brilliant song about justice. What is democracy? What is the deal? What does it look like? How does it feel? Do we have it now? My question is, whatever happened in America to decency, civility, respect for facts and the truth, a concern for the common good, or as the preamble to the Constitution says, concern for the general welfare. And then a spiritual question from the album, what is the good life? What is wealth? Finally, he says, this is a good question to be asking right now. What will you put up with as a person, as a country? What will you allow? The title is, When Justice is Real, he implies it's not real yet, even though we give lift service to it in the Pledge to the Flag. Justice is a major biblical image what does the Lord require? Micah asks. Justice, kindness, humility. Jesus, in castigating the Pharisees in Matthew 23 for majoring in minors, has his harshest words for hypocrisy. Not gay marriage, hypocrisy. He says, what you should have been doing instead of majoring in minors is justice and peace. The story of the Samaritan hero is subversive and offensive. It stirred up his audience because they thought God liked them best and he said, no, your God is too small. Last week, Reverend Mark left me as he does with some blazing questions and images. He asked each of us, are you called by God to be a truth teller? Is God calling you to be a holy disruptor like Jesus? To be a risk taker like Schindler? 
Or like the Samaritan, as he was kneeling beside the traveler, healing, binding his wounds, might have been mistaken by a passerby for the one who attacked him and then be attacked himself. What are you willing to risk as a truth teller from now on? Where are you willing to embrace the ethic of Christ and to be a holy disruptor? Will you pray and think with me about that? Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.